Thank you all, all of you, for coming. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with so many good people. I'd like to begin, uh, first of all, of course, offering my respects to my own spiritual master. Namo Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prishtaya Bhutale Srimate Bhaktivedanta Swamiti Namine Namaste Sarasate Devi Gauravani Pracharine Nyavisesha Shunivari Paschatya Desatarine. So thousands of years ago, uh, an extraordinary event took place in this world, according to ancient sources. An event which in, in some ways transformed the earth, culturally or spiritually, <clears throat> and according to the sacred sources, actually had an impact even beyond this world. The word yoga, uh, which means literally a link or connection, uh, also, uh, you may have seen this actually recently in the Avatar movie. They actually they borrowed this from the Vedic culture. That's okay. It's, a, uh, it's an open lending library. <clears throat> the idea that all life is actually connected. All life is actually connected. And uh, there are different path pathways, different connections, different links within the universe. If we study the ancient uh, Vedic texts, that's another topic. So many things. Everything reminds me of something else, but I'm going to really try to remain coherent. <laughs> anyway, so by these universal connections, the, these dramatic events that took place on the earth actually had effects far beyond this world. And um, these events, which we're going to talk about, were so extraordinary, were so powerful that sages, the greatest sages, taught them, uh, described them to, to their students and uh, children. Parents taught them to their children, wandering sages, bards. They were, in the ancient Sanskrit word is sutta. They traveled all around the countryside describing what had happened. And uh, these events that took place thousands of years ago were never forgotten. In fact, they become... It, uh, so, so we'll talk about what actually happened. Basically, um, not only did an avatar come down, uh, the word avatar, I'll explain what that word means in Sanskrit. Ava in Sanskrit means downward. Tara means crossing. So avatara literally means uh, the one who crosses down. Uh, practically every spiritual path, if you study the world, uh, begins from the assumption that the ordinary world, or, the, or let me say the world as an ordinary person perceives it in an ordinary state of consciousness, like you get up and there it is. Uh, so the world, as an ordinary person perceives it, in an ordinary state of consciousness, is not the highest truth. That there are uh, profound, inconceivable, uh, wonderful truths about the universe and about things beyond the universe which can only be understood in higher states of consciousness. And in a sense, that's the starting point. That's the first assumption uh, for any spiritual path, the idea that there's somewhere to go. And so, of course, the idea is that the path leads upward. The path leads upward. And uh, so the avatar, the avatar is the one who crosses down uh, a great soul. It may, be, it may be God, it may be another great soul that comes down from that higher plane of existence here to uh, help out. And therefore, in India... Uh, holy places, places of pilgrimage, places where you go to be spiritually inspired or rejuvenated are most commonly called tirthas. And the word tirtha is actually formed from the same Sanskrit root as the word tara in avatara. So the idea is that a great soul, a pure soul, crosses down to this world of ours and wherever that, so to speak, wherever that soul lands or wherever that soul lives and, and performs activities, that place becomes a tirtha. It, it, because the great soul in coming down opens a channel between this world and a higher world, and if we go to those places, we can ascend through that same channel, and therefore holy places are called tirthas. That's the linguistic connection. So, according to the, the Bhagavatam, which we're, we talked about last year, and actually Mahabharata as well, uh, thousands of years ago, uh, not only did an avatar come down, but actually the avatari, which means the source of avatars. And so, uh, and when that being came uh, and, and personally spoke 
briefly, personally spoke uh, briefly, those teachings became one of the most famous texts in the world, and perhaps the single most famous spiritual book from the East, which is called Bhagavad Gita. Of course, the speaker was Krishna. Uh, so, so important was this event that again, according to the tradition, another avatar, because there are, you know, lots of avatars, another avatar came down simply to document, to record what was happening. And that avatar was Bhagavan Vyasa, Veda Vyasa, who was extremely famous within Indian civilization as the author of the Mahabharata uh, and actually the author of the, the Bhagavad Purana as well, the one who divided and organized the Vedas for this age. And Vyasa personally participated in the events which he described, and we'll talk about all that. So he not only was the observer, the witness, the documenter, but actually he was a participant in those same events. So the, the story he told, the story he told about those events that took place thousands of years ago is called the Mahabharata. Uh, the word Maha means great, and from that Sanskrit word Maha, of course, we have the very the well-known Latin word Magna. The Magna, the Magna Bharata, the great Bharata, is in magnified, magnificent. Bharata is, uh, in Indian languages, and in Sanskrit, the name of India. And not only India. India is a modern political entity. We're talking about an, an immediate area in terms of uh, the immediate or the, uh, the principal region in which all these events took place in areas stretching from the west, in the west from Afghanistan. Some of the major players in this story came from Afghanistan. For example, Gandhari from Gandhara, today called Kandahar. In Afghanistan, going all the way to the east, to Bengal, and perhaps beyond, even to Burma, and so on. So this is a very vast area. And um, so that's Mahabharata, great Bharata, great Bharata. Uh, and to this day, India bears that name. So I'm going to talk about this text, this book. What is it? When was it actually composed? Where was it composed? And how was it composed? How did it come down to us today? That's a whole story. Just as this text, this Mahabharata is called Itihasa. That's the, the genre, the literary genre. Itihasa in Sanskrit means, well, we translate history. It's actually formed of three words. Itihasa, thus it happened in the past. Itihasa. And uh, so it's taken to be an actual history, but there's a history of the text itself. Because at the time uh, this text was first composed, uh, people basically did not write, despite some very popular Hindu stories about the writing of the Mahabharata. Uh, actually, the Mahabharata itself doesn't want really to talk about this. And, but in any case, uh, we know that the text does have a very long oral tradition. At a certain point, uh, it was written down. It, it was extremely, it was wildly popular. It was basically... Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, The Avatar, everything. It was a summer blockbuster movie. It was television. Television. It was. It was really. It was the great epic. In fact, to this day, among scholars, uh, if you say, if you're talking about South Asian, you say the great epic. If you simply say the great epic, it means the Mahabharata. So, I'll just give you a few quotes, a few uh, third-party statements to this effect. Um, in the 20th century, a very prominent scholar uh, who taught at the University of Chicago, Van Butenen, translated uh, a good part of the Mahabharata. He died before he finished it. He's, his translation is, is, is the most respected among scholars of the Mahabharata. And this is what he says about the Mahabharata. More than any other text in Indian civilization, Again, we're talking about a much larger area than the modern political state of India. More than any other text in Indian civilization, the great epic has been the storehouse of ancient lore. Countless are the references to the Mahabharata in literature. Such references show how familiar the Indian was with the events and the heroes of the epic. So familiar, they became proverbial. Then he talks about how Indian art, whether it I mean sculpture, Paintings, uh, 
architecture, uh, books on grammar, astronomy, books on literary theory, not to speak of poetry and literature, everywhere it's assumed that you know the story. To, to know, to take birth anywhere in that part of the world is to know the story, to know the characters practically from, from infancy. So, so the influence, the cultural influence has been all pervading. It's actually one of the pillars of the entire civilization from which, of course, yoga comes. Uh, in, the, in the, let's say, approximately the mid-20th century, there was an attempt made, in fact, well, more than an attempt, actually, a project was undertaken to collect all the physical manuscripts of this text that could be found in the world and to bring them together and to try to figure out, you know, sort of organize them and, and, and try to find the original uh, text and so on. And um, all the greatest Sanskritists of the world, from India, from Europe, from America, participated in this project and uh, produced what is called the critical edition of the Mahabharata. So the, the chief editor of this project was a gentleman named, a scholar named Vishnu Sutankar. And this is what he says about the Mahabharata. This is what he says about the project they undertook. The reasons which have induced Sanskritists, both here in India and abroad, to undertake this gigantic enterprise are easy to understand. The preeminent importance of the epic is universally acknowledged. So uh, what is the Mahabharata? I mean, First of all, it's a very large book. It, it's probably the, the largest uh, single coherent epic text in the world. Uh, there is a huge thing called the Gizar in Tibet, actually. It's sort of a, sort of a similar stories of kings and so on, but it, it, it's a series of disparate oral traditions and so on. But in terms of a single a coherent text, probably the largest in the world, Mahabharata has about 100,000 verses, uh, almost two million words. It is depending uh, on you know which source you read, between seven and ten times as large as the Iliad and the Odyssey put together. So it's a very large work. Uh, and then when was it written, or where? First, it, it, it describes for the most part events in North India, and again I said, as I said, Afghanistan and that whole area. But mostly the events take place in North, North India. When did these events take place? Can we date these events? Uh, of course, we're going to talk about them. I don't want you to think that uh, we spend the whole week doing this academic stuff. But I just wanted to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Um, there have been many attempts to date. How old did these things really happen? How long ago did they take place, the, these great events, these monumental events? And just very briefly, then I want to get on uh, to other things, but just so you know what we're talking about. Uh, attempts have been made to date the Mahabharata to archaeology, uh, including metallurgy and uh, through uh, philology, which means trying to find references in the text to events that, that which we can date in, in known history, lists of kings, and, and so on and so forth. And these dates uh, vary, let's say, from, uh, from uh, let's say, in a sense, the, the most recent dates would be about 3,000 years ago, based on various methods. I don't go into all the details, but... Um, but, but not so reliable. These are basically academic speculations. How old the text really is, I think, in a sense, perhaps the best picture we get of how ancient this really is. Uh, in order to explain that, I want to talk about a gentleman named Aryabhatta. Uh, this gentleman, who you may have heard of, Aryabhatta, is one of the great astronomers in history. He lived about 1,500 years ago. And I'll just say a few words about Mr. Aryabhatta who lived about 1,500 years ago in India. Uh, for one thing, he was quite bright. He actually is one of the, the creators of trigonometry. So he, he was, I mean, the, if you know trigonometry, the word sine and cosine were actually taken from him. He used the Sanskrit word ja and koja, which were sort of mistranscribed as sine and cosine. So he's one of the creators of trigonometry. He did astronomical calculations, calculating the planets and so on, and his calculations were so precise that during the golden age of Islam, uh, they used his calculations. And from, from Islam, typical thing, India to Islam to Europe, it was translated into Latin called the Toledo Tables, and his figures, his numbers, his calculations of the planets and so on uh, were the most accurate tools in European astronomy for many centuries. So we're talking about a very bright person. Now, 
what Aryabhata did was to look at the Mahabharata text, which is full of astronomical descriptions, because uh, astrology was a very big thing back then, and interestingly, in Europe, the greatest uh, uh, European astronomers, like people like Copernicus and even Galileo, were actually one of the main motivations for astronomy was trying to get better data for their astrology. Interestingly, which is not mentioned in Western astronomy courses because, of course, it's an embarrassment. <laughs> but in any case, that's what they were doing. The astronomers were really frustrated because the astrologers got the ology word, you know, like biology, physiology, and they're stuck with astronomy, and these other people got the ology word, astrology. They've actually never gotten over that. <laughs> but in any case, uh, the Mahabharata is filled with these astronomical descriptions. For example, when Krishna was born, or when, or when many other events took place, when, when the battle of Kurukshetra took place, and we'll talk about that, what was the alignment of the stars? That, that's how they dated things back then. In other words, it was not only astrology, it was astronomy. And so they would... Um, they would tell you when things happened by telling you what, uh, you know, asterism was in what lunar mansion, what the position of the stars were, what month it was, and so on and so forth. Now, Aryabhata, uh, Mr. Aryabhata, as I said, was very bright. 1,500 years ago, he went through the Mahabharata and took all these calculations or, or, or all these astronomical descriptions and the date he came up with, scientifically, was, he could even find out the date. Well, he said that, um, apart from the, the, the specific days certain events took place, that basically these events took place about 5,100 years ago, 5,100 years ago. That's the date he came up with, uh, based on. And, and without going into all the details, uh, in order to... Uh, it's difficult to say that, let's say, much more recently, like maybe a couple thousands of years ago, someone who wanted to make the Mahabharata look very old kind of put in this older astronomical data because the astronomical data is based on certain information about the stars which wasn't discovered in the West until a few hundred years ago. In other words, uh, so there's all kinds of technical things. Now, one little note here. Uh, for various reasons, different generations of Western scholars did not want this stuff to be so old. <laughs> Why didn't they want Vedic culture to be in business, you know, for five, you know, so many thousands of years? Because in the beginning, the first generations of Indologists, of Orientalists, of scholars of India and other Asian lands uh, were proselytizing Christians. Their mission was to basically ridicule Vedic culture and show that everyone in India should convert immediately to the only real religion. So, and Europe at that time uh, believed that world history began with the Garden of Eden, and they dated that to so many thousands of years ago. And so they discovered this very ancient Indian civilization. It, it messed up all the Bible dates. And so in order to show that their own speculations about the Garden of Eden and so were true, they had to say that India wasn't so old. Then, the next generation of Western scholars were not at all Christians. They were, uh, you could say, agnostics. And they also didn't want it to be so old because that gave too much prestige to India and almost smacked of some theory that this is the origin of human civilization and there's no way we're going to let them be the origin of civilization. So... But there is this evidence. So, so you may see other dates if you read books about it. I won't go into that. That's, that's all. We could have a month-long seminar on the Indo-European issue, but not now. So the Mahabharata is this very large book. It's in Sanskrit, of course. And um, so it has this tremendous influence. And ultimately, within the Mahabharata, within the Mahabharata is, as I mentioned before, the single most important book that came out of the civilization the Bhagavad Gita, most important in terms of its influence. Uh, it's sort of the universal spiritual book of that civilization, the Bhagavad Gita. So now, uh, tomorrow morning, if the world still exists as we now know it, I'm going to talk, start to tell some of the stories of the Mahabharata.
But uh, for now, I just want to say something about the Mahabharata. For one thing, the, the, these great stories take place on three levels, really, as we will see. Uh, on the first level, it, it's an earthly story. It's a story about a great dynastic struggle, a struggle within a great royal dynasty, the Kuru dynasty, between cousin brothers and uh, representing the forces of good and evil. So it's the story of that dynastic struggle. At the same time, the text also informs us, because of the presence not only of the good avatars like Krishna and Vyasa, but also the fact that very powerful beings who were not good guys also descended to this world for various reasons that I'll talk about next time. And so the, the word avatara can be used as a neutral term. It simply means someone that comes down. And so within the universe, uh, within the universe, there are powerful beings. Some of them, you know, are the good guys, and some of them are the bad guys. And so all kinds of people came down to the earth. Why did they come to earth? Why did they choose earth? Is it because the universe is geocentric? No. There was another reason for it. Why did they pick this planet? So we'll talk about all that. The Mahabharata explains all this. So it's not only an earthly dynastic struggle, it's also, in a sense, a universal struggle, and, and, and it's a cosmic battle for various reasons. And ultimately, with the Bhagavad Gita, it is a spiritual narrative that transcends both the earth and the cosmos and really is concerned with things beyond this universe. So the Mahabharata takes place at these three levels, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, what, what time do we stop today? So, uh, now, in order to understand the Mahabharata, I think it's important to understand the, the picture of the universe that the Mahabharata assumes. The Mahabharata and many other of these Sanskrit literatures, <coughs> they had a very clear picture of what the universe is, including time, space, and, uh, and so on. And the demographics of the universe, who lives in the universe, and what are the relationships? If we study other ancient pictures of the world, either from the Middle East in their great literatures, or even the, the uh, picture we get from Greco-Roman sources, Egyptian sources, or, or whatever other parts of the world, uh, China, this is absolutely, as Carl Sagan pointed out, the largest picture. This is the largest picture of the universe, the most sophisticated. And so <clears throat> I want to tell you what the universe looks like to this culture. Because that's the universe, that's the world that the whole thing operates within. So first, time. <clears throat> first we'll talk about time. The Indo-European civilization, this means ancient pagan Europe, which, is very, which was a very interesting place. Uh, and uh, the great Indian civilization, they understood or claimed that along, for example, along with Aristotle, that time is cyclical. If you look at the movements of the earth, the earth turns on its axis. The earth goes around the sun. The sun is going around in its own orbit. The seasons go in cycles. The moon goes in cycles. So, so Aristotle understood, as this ancient Vedic civilization understood, that in a sense, the essential cosmic motion is the cycle. And therefore, it's a cyclical, whereas the Middle East had sort of an unusual picture of time, which is that it's unilinear. It just starts at a certain time. There was nothing, then there's something, and it just goes in one direction. And this, and interestingly, modern science, uh, for all of their uh, anti-religious enthusiasm, has uh, also enthusiastically taken this Middle Eastern concept of time. In any case, uh, time was cyclical, and there are what is called yugas. Many of you, of course, know these things. Yugas are sort of great planetary and even universal seasons. So that you find this also, by the way, in the works of, not only in the Vedic literature, you find it in ancient Greece, in the works of Hesiod, who after Homer was the most important ancient Greek writer, he talks about these same seasons. And so the first age is Satya Yuga, the age of truth, the golden age, which lasts a very long time. There are different systems in, in which, you know, sometimes it's on a million, 
200,000 years. Sometimes you divide that by 10 or even by 100. But in any case, there's an age of truth. Then there's a Treta Yuga. Then a Dwapara Yuga. And finally the Kali Yuga, this amazing age we live in. So the idea is that the duration of each age declines by a quarter. Uh, virtue declines. And, and so on and so forth. So... Uh, the Mahabharata, the events of the Mahabharata take place exactly at the end of the Dwapara Yuga, the third of these ages. In fact, one thing which uh, the texts tell us again and again and again is the very moment that Krishna left this world, the Kali Yuga began. Krishna's leaving is actually the demarcation, the dividing line between the previous Dwapara Yuga and the age of Kali the age that we live in now. So that's basically, so the times are very vast. The, uh, we have Sanskrit literatures that talk about trillions and trillions of years. It's a very big picture. And it also talks about different time systems and different, in different worlds. So that, for example, it, it talks about the relativity of time long before Einstein, that let's say uh, a year on this planet may be a different, maybe more or less time in a different world based on different conditions. So there's the notion of the relativity of time. And there's also the notion that ultimately the, the soul exists beyond material time. Not merely, the soul is not merely eternal in the sense of existing uh, for endless material time, but the soul actually, actually exists in a different system beyond material time. But anyway, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is part of the Mahabharata, so we can talk about that uh, more later. But as far as space, very big universe. The universe, it, it's always mentioned there are three worlds, just like almost anywhere you go in this world, there's upper class, middle class, lower class, different living conditions, different facilities. So the Sanskrit literature constantly talks about the three worlds. This is a very common thing, the three worlds. The very notion, the earth is more or less, you could say, lower middle class. And, but with aspirations, and <laughs> sometimes putting on airs, you know, geocentrism. And so the very notion of the avatar, again, the one who crosses down, is that coming from those higher worlds down to this world. And the higher worlds are not all virtuous. So, But basically the geography of the universe is these three different worlds. Uh, also, the notion of um, samsara and karma, probably know about this. This is very much a part of it. <clears throat> really of all Indian systems practically including Buddhism and Jainism. That um, <clears throat> samsara is the, the understanding that souls are not their bodies. The body is simply covering the souls. It's a vehicle or to use Krishna's word in the Gita, basansi, simply clothes like, like something you wear, a wardrobe. And the soul changes bodies just like we change our clothes. We take different forms of dress. We change bodies. That's called samsara. The word karma indicates that this process of transmigration of the soul or reincarnation, whatever, is governed by a moral law. It doesn't just happen whimsically. It's not by chance. But there actually is an ethical or moral law which governs this process, and that is karma. That's another notion, uh, which is very much part of the civilization. Uh, ultimately, if you, if you read books about Mahabharata or, you know, Wikipedia or whatever, one thing that's always said is that perhaps the, one of the key concepts of the whole text is dharma. And so perhaps in the time remaining, I want to talk about dharma because this is a very, very important uh, notion, not only in Hinduism or Vedic culture, of course, it's one of the key words in Buddhism, so what is this word dharma? What does it actually mean? Uh, so I'll talk about that for a second. Actually, I was exaggerating. I'll talk about it for several minutes. Uh, in general, Sanskrit was conceived by ancient grammarians like the great Pandey, who really, in a sense, uh, his work sort of created the modern discipline of linguistics. Uh, Pandey, this ancient grammarian, and all of his colleagues and predecessors and, uh, 
conceived of Sanskrit as literally an organic language in which you have these verbal roots because, in a sense, word, words, th th there are actions. Life is dynamic, and so you have these roots of action, verbal roots, which grow into words by taking stems and then, you know, flowering in different semantic ways. Anyway, so the roots, every word has its root in Sanskrit, so the root, the, the dynamic root of the word dharma is the uh, word dhar, D-H, and then the vowel R, which sometimes is written dri, which is not really what it is, it's actually a vowel R, dhar. But in any case, uh, this word means to hold, to sustain. For example, there's a very famous name of Krishna as the one who held up a mountain as a child, Govardhan, so he's called Giri Dhari, the same word dhara. So dhara, or for example, the, um, uh, what is it, the sixth stage of... Dharana, yeah, Dharana. Then the sixth stage of Ashtanga Yoga, right? I'm just doing the math there. Yeah, so it's called Dharana because after you do the yamas, niyamas, number, you just become sort of a decent person. You don't do weird things. You're sitting there peacefully and nicely <laughs> and not bothering your neighbors. And then you, that's yama, niyama, and then asana, you learn how to sit properly because you have to sit for a very long time. You know, if you get a cramp, it's going to mess up your meditation. <laughs> So, therefore, you had to learn all these asanas, and then pranayama, you control the breathing. And then pratyahara, which literally means, uh, literally means sort of like bringing it back, or withdrawal, where, where you bring your consciousness back from the external world, you bring it within. Pratyahara, and then dharana, which kind of means in Sanskrit, holding on. <laughs> That's literally kind of what it means, because, because once you bring your consciousness within, you know, it may... It may pop back out, <laughs> as we all have experienced. Like, for example, let's say you're meditating, and some like, really important thing happens, like your cell phone rings. So, so dharana is a stage where you just sort of hold on. And then, once, you, once you're steady, then you can meditate, then dhyana, and samadhi. So, from the same root, from the same root, we have the word dharma. And uh, so, I just typed out for you, here are some of the dictionary meanings of the word dharma. Uh, that which is established or firm. There was dharma from that root, that which is a firm, established. And from that, a, a, a practice, a customary observance, law, prescribed conduct. In other words, uh, here we... Law, not in a mundane sense, because... In a mundane sense, you can have an unjust law. But there's no question of unjust dharma, because the word unjust is a dharma, not dharma. And so dharma must be justice, and therefore it's actually the sacred law. Uh, without going into it now, if anybody you know about it, the, the Greek word logos, there's some connections. Anyway, uh, so it's the law which governs the universe. Uh, George Lucas studied all this stuff before he made Star, uh, Star Wars and uh, you know, made the force be with you. The force, in a sense, is dharma. So it's this force within the universe. It's the law which governs the universe. And so, for example, in the Mahabharata, early on in the Mahabharata, there's a very powerful statement where Indra is trying to convince uh, King Uparichara, uh, who wants to ascend to heaven, and uh, Indra's kind of has sort of job security angst because this king wants to go to heaven. And so, it's interesting. I mean, there's so much humor in Sanskrit. People sometimes read it and think it's sacred text. And there's, there's like incredible humor in this text. So, for example, Upari, his name is Uparichara Vasu in the text, which literally means upwardly mobile Vasu. And that's literally what it means. Upari is upward and Chara is mobile. So it's upwardly mobile, so upwardly mobile Vasu. So when Indra is trying to convince this, this upwardly mobile Vasu, just, you know, stay in your own position, I'll stay in mine, let's not compete. Um, he, Indra tells him that dharma rakshito rakshati, hingsito hingsati, which means that when dharma is protected, it protects. When dharma is injured, it injures. The word injured there is hingsito, like, so anyway, so Dharma is this force, this, this divine law within the universe. 
governing all things, and if you align yourself with that divine law, you will basically have a life free of anxiety, and you will be protected by that system. Just like if you follow the law in a good state, the law will protect you. And if you injure the law, the law will injure you. And also, another analogy is that if you follow the law, you are not only, let's say, protecting yourself legally and socially and so on, but you are actually contributing to a civil society. You're contributing to the general peace by doing your duty properly, by not speeding in your car, by not cheating in different ways and so on. So that's the idea, that there is actually a cosmic law, a universal law, and by observing that law, which is called dharma, you are actually contributing to the peace of the universe and, of course, to your own well-being. So those are some of the things of dharma, and there are different kinds of dharma. For example, there's a yuga dharma in every age, there is a, uh, a dharma, a duty, or which is especially efficacious, especially powerful in that particular age to bring people to enlightenment. And as far as the yuga dharma for this age, we just did it. Uh, very beautiful singing, and uh, from various singers, we have this beautiful music, that's kirtan. Actually, what we just did is considered to be, in, in, this, in these literatures, the yuga dharma. So there's also... Ultimately, as, as I'll explain to you, there's a notion of Sanatana Dharma. In fact, in India, the word Hindu, I won't go into this now, but the word Hindu is actually a recent term. It's not an ancient term. It's actually a mispronunciation of a Sanskrit word, for, which for various reasons became the name of a religion. But anyway, it has not been used for only a few hundred years among people that follow the Vedas to describe themselves. That's a whole other thing I can just, you know, for a slight extra fee, I can explain later. So, but in any case, sometimes people who are, just kidding, sometimes, just keep feeding me, sometimes certain so-called Hindus who are very strict about their own history, you know, they prefer the term Sanatana Dharma. Sanatana means eternal or everlasting. So there, just as, for example, there's Raja Dharma, royal Dharma, or, or Dharma for governors, leaders of, of the people. And, and of course, Sri Dharma, special duties for women, or, or Dana Dharma, the Dharma governing charity, the giving of charity, the receiving of charity. And, and ultimately, there's Varnashram Dharma, the entire society. And this is, again, you can't really understand what's going on in Mahabharata unless you understand Varnashram Dharma. That human society is divided into four Varnas, Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. In other words, the teachers, the governors and warriors, the, the merchants and, and the farmers, and, and the workers and, and, and artisans. Interestingly, in the Bhagavad Gita, this system is not designated by birth. It became a hereditary caste system, but uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, all of the many descriptions of this system talk about it as a system based on your own qualification and your own nature. So that's the earlier system, which later became completely rigidified and therefore uh, somewhat oppressive, and led to revolutions, social revolutions, Nonviolent social revolutions, such as, for example, Buddhism. Again, it's another story. So anyway, but within within the Mahabharata, there's this um, Varna system, and also the Ashram system, which is, say, a young student is called a Brahmachari or Brahmacharini for for a girl, in which they are celibate students. Then the Grihastha, they can marry. Most people do marry. They have normal family life, and uh, at a certain point, the kids are grown and you put them through college and so on, and uh, then the parents, again, just as, just as the mother and father in their own youth were dedicated to spiritual practices, then they, let's say, they uh, marry, they have children, there's so many duties, so many responsibilities. Once they perform those duties, they again want to completely focus on their enlightenment before they leave this world. So you can leave this world in the highest possible state of consciousness so therefore, vanaprastha, literally departing for the forest, vanaprastha, in which they go and again focus on spiritual life, and ultimately sannyas, for some members of the society, complete renunciation, for those who are more spiritually advanced. So um, that's, that's also dharma, that's all called dharma. For example, brahmana dharma, chakriya dharma, or uh, sannyas dharma, grihastha dharma, and so on, so those are all dharmas. But ultimately, we not only have dharmas to guide and enlighten and govern 
our behavior according to the kind of body we have, our body type, like female, male, uh, a king, a, a poet, or a farmer, married, unmarried. There's not only a specific dharma for all of these different duties that we have based on what kind of body we have and what situation our body is by our nature. Ultimately, there's a dharma of the soul. The soul has its own dharma. When we completely transcend the body and fully understand ourselves as, an, as eternal spiritual beings, then there's our eternal dharma, which is often called sanatana dharma, as we'll see, Krishna uses a, a synonym for sanatana, shashvata. But in any case, so dharma and the Bhagavad Gita, just to give you a little uh, idea, and then uh, we'll be wrapping up this talk here, but dharma, again, Bhagavad Gita is the spiritual heart of the Mahabharata. It's really... Yeah, it's the heart of Mahabharata. It's, it's the spiritual essence of Mahabharata. The very first word of the Mahabharata is Dharma. Dharma Kshetre, Kuru Kshetre, Samadheta, Yutsava. Of course, literally, technically, the very first word is Sanjaya Vacha. That's the narrator, so Sanjaya said. But, but the, the first thing he said, I mean, Sanjaya didn't say Sanjaya said. So, the very first words that were actually spoken were, the very first word is dharma, on the field of dharma. This is very, this is very poignant, pregnant utterance, on the field of dharma, literally on the dharma field, dharma kshetre, kuru kshetre, on the field of the kurus, this great dynasty, samaveta, having assembled, yuyutsava, and desiring to fight, uh, the word for one who wants to fight in Sanskrit is jujutsu, which went to the east as jujitsu, actually. But anyway, the Sanskrit word is jujutsu, which means a warrior, one, one who is eager to fight. So, so having assembled there and eager to fight, Mamaka, Vidarasu said, my own sons, Pandavas Chaiva, and the Pandava brothers, Kimakurvata Sanjaya. What did they do? Sanjaya. And then, of course, the Gita spoken. So the first word is Dharma. On the field of Dharma. Actually, it is Dhritarashtra, isn't it? Sorry, next time I'll listen to <laughs> Sorry. See that? Should, I should have listened. So, Dharma Kshetre. Uh, so, on the field of Dharma. Now, the next time the word... So, anyway, then Arjuna, who doesn't want to fight. We'll talk more about this later. Arjuna is a great warrior. He's one of the greatest warriors in the world. And he has good reasons to fight. When we talk about Mahabharata, you'll understand why Arjuna was supposed to fight. Because uh, his cousin brothers were after did a lot of very bad things, which included, among other highlights, rape, murder, usurpation, thievery, and so on and so forth. So, but still, Arjuna became overwhelmed by sort of a, sort of a sentiment and didn't want to fight. And therefore, in the first chapter of Bhagavad Gita is kind of the Arjuna Gita. The other chapters of the Bhagavad Gita were Bhagavan. Lord is speaking, but Arjun gets his Gita in chapter 1, where, where he's doing a lot of the talking. And um, and he uses the word Dharma a lot. In fact, Arjun's, basically argue, Arjun's basic argument is, this is bad for Dharma. That if we fight, we're going to kill these warriors, they've all got wives and children, who's going to take care of all these families, everyone's going to fall into a Dharma, the world will go to hell. And so Arjuna's basic argument in the first chapter is framed in terms of dharma. This war is not good for dharma. Therefore, we shouldn't fight it. And of course, Arjuna, Krishna will counter this by saying, hello, this is actually a dharma yuda. This is all about dharma. And uh, so we'll talk about that. Finally, after after giving all of his arguments about Dharma, in the second chapter, amazingly, just before Krishna takes over, Arjuna says, actually, I haven't got the slightest idea what my Dharma is here. <laughs> because he says, uh, you know, Karpanya dosha upahasa sabhava pachamitam dharma sammudha cheta. Cheta, my mind, my consciousness. You know, the yoga sutras, yoga, chitta, well, chitta, this is cheta, just not the same word. So Arjuna, Arjuna says that I am dharma samudha cheta. My consciousness, my mind is samudha, completely confused, samudha, about dharma. 
I haven't got the slightest idea what I'm supposed to do here. So in that sense, again, the first word of the Gita, the first spoken word, is, is, is dharma. Arjun frames his arguments in terms of dharma. At the end of it, he says, I really don't know what I'm talking about. I'm actually bewildered about dharma. And so Krishna is going to explain to him what dharma really is, what he's really supposed to do. So then, in chapter 4 of the Gita, uh, Krishna explains why he has come to this world why he has descended to this world. And uh, there are, if you look at, at the Sanskrit literatures, a common theme in, say, the Bhagavatam, talking about Krishna's descent is, which you find over and over and over again, is Ajojata, the unborn has taken birth. Uh, Akaratur karma, the actions of those who does not act. And so it's, it's all these paradoxes about Krishna's coming to this world. The unborn has taken birth. So, in any case, in explaining his avatar, in explaining why Krishna has descended to this world, he says in one of the most famous verses in Hinduism, and if you ever speak for an Indian audience, as soon as you begin to cite this in Sanskrit, everyone joins in, because they, they know this statement. Whenever there is a glani, a collapsing, a deterioration, a degrading of dharma, and abhiuttana, abhiuttana, literally, a sort of like an aggressive rising of adharma, then Krishna says, I manifest myself. So Krishna says that it, it's the wane of dharma, dharma collapsing, and the rising of adharma that brings him to this world. And he says, when I come, paritranaya sadhunam, in order to deliver basically good people. And vinashaya jadushkata, in order to sort of remove the bad guys from the game, and dharma sanstapanartaya, in order to reestablish dharma. That's why I come in every in age after age, in every age. Sambhavami yuge yuge. In every age I come to reestablish dharma. So as you, as you can see, dharma is, is a very key concept in all of this. And uh, then, but there are some dharmas which are less than, not every dharma is created equally. For example, in chapter 9, Krishna talks critically, he criticizes what he calls trayi dharma. Trayi dharma. Uh, trayi, which literally means the triad, or the three, is a common way of referring to the three Vedas. There's actually four Vedas, but one of them is a little voodoo-esque. It has like sort of like, you know, spells to put on people and everything and that kind of stuff. And so even back in, uh, in Vedic culture, it's kind of like, ooh, the Atarva Veda. I mean, it was... Um, it is one of the Vedas, and it is respected and sacred, but higher-class Brahmins would kind of just do the three, you know, the uh, Rig, Sama, and Yajur Veda. So therefore, Krishna, in the Gita, refers to the three Vedas, and he talked about Trahi Dharma. There's a whole topic of Krishna's very strong critique, his criticism of the Vedas in the Gita. Very interesting, but in, in referring, in this case, to the Karmakanda, the materialistic part of the culture, where basically... Sort of like, uh, you know, you know I, I, I prayed to God and I got a beautiful new house and I got promoted at work and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, so, so within this Vedic culture, there were materialistic people that, that, um, that used the, Vedic, the power of Vedic culture to get ahead materially. And Krishna, in speaking the spiritual work, criticized that. The real point of Dharma is not to get material stuff. That's not really what it's about. So therefore, he says, he talks about that those who, those who resort to, those who take shelter of the Trayi Dharma, the Dharma of the materialistic Vedas, uh, they just get a round trip. They go up to higher material planets, come right back down again. He called, Krishna calls his Gathagatam, going and coming. So, so there are Dharmas which are materialistic in a sense. And they work. I mean, they are, it's, it's okay, you can do it, but it's not really spiritual. It's just, it's a dharma which governs certain material aspects of the world and getting certain material rewards. Krishna, then in chapter 11, uh, Arjuna praises Krishna as Shashvata Dharma Gopta, the, the protector of the eternal dharma. Again, there's the common term Sanatana Dharma. The term Krishna uses in the Gita is Shashvata Dharma. Well, here Arjuna speaks this. That there is the dharma of the soul itself, the dharma of the pure soul, and Krishna protects that dharma. 
then Krishna himself says in chapter 14, Pratishtaham, various things, and Shashvatasya Chadarmasya. I am the basis, the foundation, not only of the Brahman, but also of the eternal Dharma. So Krishna said he's the Pratishta, the foundation of eternal Dharma. And finally, in a very interesting statement, we'll talk about more, and that'll we'll kind of wrap it up. In, in the dramatic, conclusive statement of the Bhagavad Gita, not the final verse, very near the end, and really like the, the this climactic verse, Krishna says, one should give up all dharmas. Krishna says, Sarva dharman parityajit. Literally, I'll translate this very literally for you, no spin, no twist, uh, just like Fox News. <laughs> Where Krishna says, uh, Sarva dharman parityajit. Giving up all dharmas, mam ekam sharanam braja, go to me alone for shelter. And so what does he mean by that? Because the whole point of the Bhagavad Gita is to convince Arjuna to do his dharma, his actual dharma as a warrior, and yet Krishna is saying, giving up all dharmas, take shelter of me. These statements are paradoxical but not contradictory, and we'll talk about that later. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a cliffhanger. It's a theological <laughs> cliffhanger. Anyway, so I have spoken a bit about Dharma because it, it's so central to the Mahabharata. And, and so the seriousness with which people took Dharma, you have to understand this to really understand what's going on in the Mahabharata, how serious they were about this notion of a cosmic force, a cosmic power, which is a divine law that governs life, and how certain, a certain group of people tried to manipulate that Dharma to actually gain control of the universe. Sort of the dark, in other words, the idea that how a certain group of people acknowledging that there is this powerful cosmic force tried to use it to actually, ultimately, gain control of the world. And the battle that took place, of course, is the story of Mahabharata. So, uh, thank you all very much for your attention. And uh, again, I'd like to uh, thank Swami Srivananda Maharaj for very kindly inviting me back, and uh, all of you. All the names, but uh, <laughs> but it is very wonderful to see you all again, and uh, look forward to seeing you again tomorrow.